So, so much of our time, and so much at least of my life, and possibly yours, is about managing disagreement. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Trying to decide if we should respond to a Facebook post that we really disagree with? <laughs> how, many, how many times have you sent that text, or you wrote it out, or you sent that Facebook post, and you went, dun, 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 dun. right? Your, your better self got a hold of you and said, no, I'm not going to do that. We have to decide how much we should say to that friend, neighbor, or loved one who says something that we are absolutely not in favor of. Sometimes we don't really have a good answer. We're not always sure how to answer them. Many times these situations leave us unfulfilled, sometimes confused, often frustrated. Much of our life seems to be, especially now, as we have a tendency to be polarized and uh, tries to divide us. So much of our life is spent managing this kind of friction. Does anybody else know what I'm talking about? But not all the tensions are out there. Some of those tensions are in the church as well. There are apparent conflicts in the Bible that we're not always sure how to manage. The author of one book seems to say it this way, while the author of another book seems to say it that way, and at times it can be difficult to understand how these different passages are working together to tell us the truth about God and His plan for the world. We're not always sure how to reconcile them. Have any of you ever read things like that in the Bible? You said, well, if this is true, how can that be true? And if that's true, how can this be true? The good news is that some of the greatest Christian minds in history have spent time looking for answers to those issues. I remember when I first got saved, and I, I'd see stuff in the Bible, and, and nobody in church really ever talked about any of that stuff. I thought, I'm like, I'm probably like the first person that's ever seen this before. i I got to go tell my pastor, right? i I got to show this to him. I just discovered, and this is, I don't even know what to do with this, right? Um the greatest Christian minds in history have spent time looking for answers to these issues. Now, one of the most fav- famous apparent Bible disagreements is between a man named Paul and a man named James. Now, Paul, for those of you that might not know, wrote most of the New Testament, was once the enemy of Jesus, but became one of his most famous and effective followers. Now, James was the brother of Jesus, who, like Paul, did not support Jesus in his movement, but later became an important leader in the earliest days of the church. So We're going to look at this more in detail in just a minute. But last year, we began working through a letter from the New Testament called James. Anybody remember? Yeah. James is like that friend or family member that doesn't pull any punches. They just tell you just the way it is. How many of you have people like that in your life? Sometimes that's great, and sometimes it's like you just want to hang up the phone. They just tell you exactly the way it is. Sometimes they're like gargling with gunpowder and they just go shooting their mouth off. I'm just going to tell it how it is, whether you like it or not. Now, James isn't quite that bad, but he will tell you exactly how it is. He tells his readers how to follow Jesus in a direct, no-nonsense kind of way. If you like clear direction without a lot of fluff or style, James is the letter for you. It was the first book of the Bible that I read as a new believer, and it still is one of my favorites. We left off last year, uh, before Christmas, I believe, chapter 2, verse 14. We're going to pick that up from there this morning. This is one of the most quoted passages from the book of James and is often identified as the main idea, the main theme of the letter. So we're going to read from uh, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. It's a little bit of scripture, so just hang with me. 
What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham, our father, justified by works in offering Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. You read that and think this is reasonable and straightforward. But then there's this book of Romans, which is considered not just one of Paul's greatest letters, but by considered by many one of the greatest pieces of literature in the history of the world. The book of Romans, right there in your Bible. It says this, Romans chapter 3, verse 28, For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, if you compare that with one of the verses we just read in James, you're going to see what has caused not just a little controversy. Romans, Paul says in Romans that we're justified by faith apart from the works of the law. James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What in the world is going on? Why don't you guys go in a room and work this out? Because you're just making us confused. So who's right, James or Paul? Are we made right with God by faith alone or by faith and works together? Well, as you might have guessed, we're going to get into this this morning. Because faith is not just an important theme of the book of James. It is a primary theme, of course, of the whole Bible. Faith is what opens the door to a relationship, life-altering, identity-defining relationship with God. Hebrews 11, verse 6, Now without faith it is impossible to please God. Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. No religious ceremony or ritual really does anything. What matters is faith working through love. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by what? I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. We live by faith. We know God by faith. We please God by faith. What matters most is faith. So we need to make sure that the faith we have is the kind of faith the Bible's talking about. Because, you know, we can get a little um, misguided in our minds. Our minds can take us one way, and maybe the truth is really the other way. So we need to continue to come back and see what the Bible says about some of those things this morning. We're going to look at what it says in James about faith. Now, this is going to require that we take a very honest look at ourselves. 
I think all of us have come to understand that faith is a whole lot easier to talk about than it is to live. It's a whole lot easier to talk about my dependence in God than it is to live my dependence in God. It's a whole lot easier to say what I believe than it is for others to see what I believe. Sadly, that seems to be the case. This sermon series that we've been working through, this book of James, is titled Living Faith. Not just the fact that we want to be living our faith, but it is a living faith. It brings power and life and truth. But the question we have to ask ourselves this morning and find an answer to is how alive is our faith? How alive is our faith? I hope to answer that question with two more questions. We're going to get into this this morning. Don't you love that when you ask a question and somebody else asks you a question back? Well, we are going to answer how alive is our faith with two more questions, and hopefully that's going to help us this morning. The first question, if you're taking notes, is does faith alone make us right with God? Does faith alone make us right with God? There are three things that help us understand the meaning of a verse in the Bible. If you've been around here for a long time, this is just going to be cheating. This is like candy to a baby. There's three things that help us to understand the meaning of the verse in the Bible. Does anybody remember one of them? The first one is crickets. The first one is context. Thank you for that. The second one is context. The third one is context. Man, you guys are good. Sharp like a tack, this group. So the context, what's happening in the book around us? What's happening before? What's happening after? The literary context. What's happening in the culture at the time it was written? Different gospels are aimed at different people, so they different people groups. So they have different emphasis. That's why the gospels are different. We need to know what's going on in the culture, who's it written to. We also need to know what does the Bible say about this subject, the theological context, because you can get a verse here and a verse there. You need to put all of those verses that deal with prayer, all of those verses that deal with faith. You need to put them together, take a look at what the entire Bible has to say about faith, and then determine what God is trying to say to us. So we have to look at the context. We need to interpret the Bible with the Bible, comparing it with other parts to understand it better. Does faith alone make us right with God? Yes, the overwhelming evidence of Scripture is that we are justified, made right with God through faith. But what kind of faith can make us right with God? What kind of faith can save us? This is the question that James is answering for us. He doesn't, in my opinion, in the opinion of most Bible scholars, he doesn't disagree with Paul, but helps give definition to his words, helps give definition to this idea of faith. To give us this definition, James sketches out two different kinds of faith, a faith that is living and a faith that is not. The faith that opens the door to a life-giving, identity-defining relationship with God is not just a faith that we declare. It is a faith that we act on. It's not just a faith that we declare, but it is a faith that we act on. James tells us that faith that is alive is a faith that works. 
It makes a difference in our lives. It empowers us to obey God and to live out His will in our life. Now, anybody in the room do that perfectly? No. None of us do that perfectly. None of us have a completely living faith that allows us to obey God in every circumstance. It causes us to rise up in the midst of every challenge that helps us to deal with it in a way that God would approve of. None of us have a completely living faith. None of us obey perfectly. None of us has a faith that is fully alive based on James' description. But this fact cannot keep us from evaluating our spiritual progress based on on the evidence for the faith that we can find in our lives, in our habits, in our thoughts, in our words. Is there a demonstration of the life of God, the love of God, the truth of God, or the power of God in our lives? Now, when I say that, I'm not talking about a perfect demonstration, but a persistent one, growing in consistency and spreading in influence. Is there a consistent influence of faith in our life? Christians aren't, you've heard this many times, but it's worth repeating here. Christians aren't sinless. But as we grow and we mature, we should what? Sin less. Our faith should change us. It should be transforming us. That is James's definition of a living faith. Not a perfect faith, friends but a persistent one, growing in consistency and spreading in influence. This, according to James, is living faith. And James wants us to make sure that we recognize that a faith that we only declare, but do not consistently act on, is a faith that cannot save us. It is a faith that is not living, but is in fact dead. We have to be willing to look in our lives and recognize that there are dead branches in our tree. We can ignore them, or we can get out the ladder, we can get out the saw, and we can cut off the dead branches so that living branches can grow in their place. A faith we agree to but never allow to change us will never bring healing, joy, forgiveness, peace, and power in our lives. A faith that we just agree on, that we agree is a good idea, that we think is right, the devil believes, James tells us. But of course, it doesn't transform him. It doesn't bring life to him. The devil agrees with the idea that God is real and that he's powerful but he never trusts in him. He never acts on that faith in a positive way. A faith we agree to, but never allow to change us will never bring power, healing, joy, forgiveness, or peace to our lives. How many could use some of that in your life right now? Hey, I could use a little more power. I could use a little healing, some joy, some forgiveness, some peace. So I need to continue to prune back any dead faith in my life so that I can allow some real and living faith to grow. Anybody with me this morning? Let's challenge ourselves to continue to lean into the faith that we believe in, to allow it to challenge us, to allow it to shape our habits, our thoughts, our actions, and our attitudes. I want to have living faith, and I'm believing that you do as well. Now that leads us to question two. What are the marks of living faith? What are the marks? 
if we want to cut out dead faith and encourage living faith, then we need to know what it looks like. What are the marks of living faith? Thankfully, James gives us some examples of what he's talking about, some working definitions of living faith. He talks about Abraham's sacrificial obedience. Abraham's sacrificial obedience. He was instructed by God to go to the mountain and offer his only son as a burnt sacrifice. Now, remarkably, this is one of the few times that Abraham doesn't stand there and argue or debate with God. He doesn't ask him any questions. He simply packs the wood, the fire, takes his son and a knife, and heads off for the mountain. His son, who was the long-awaited fulfillment of God's promise, the one who brought joy and laughter to their lives, the one who is at the center of all the promises that God gave Abraham to bless the whole world. How could he just go and do this? How could Abraham, for the, one of the few times, not argue, not ask questions, he just obeyed? How in the world could Abraham take those steps? Because Abraham believed God. Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises, and yet he was offering his one and only son, the one to whom it had been said, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. He considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead if he obeyed him. He told his servants that he and his son would return, Genesis 22.5. He told his son that God himself would provide the sacrifice for the offering, Genesis 22.8. Sometimes what God asks for is painful. Sometimes what God asks for requires sacrifice. We can be assured that whatever we give God, God will give back more. Whatever we're willing to sacrifice, God will bring life out of it. This, friends, is living faith. He will keep His promises. Living like this is true brings the provision of God to where our needs are. This is the kind of faith that saves and restores, that brings freedom and life, that brings joy and peace. A belief that claims faith is demonstrated by sacrificial obedience. That's demonstrated by sacrificial obedience. Thankfully, God is not going to ask us to do what Abraham did. But He will ask us to give what is most precious to us. Oftentimes, what is most precious to us, God will ask us for. He asks us to put it in His hands and trust Him for the answers, for the provision. What's God asking from you today? 
God asking from you today? What is He asking you to surrender? What is He asking you to give? What obedience is He calling for? I'd be willing to bet that there are some things that God has been asking for that some of us have not yet been willing to give. If you haven't heard that yet, you're probably not listening. Because God always seems to put His finger on those things that one, will allow us the most growth, and the way that we grow is by allowing Him to be in charge of every, all who we are. And so much of the time we get to the point where we think we're trusting Jesus with our whole life and then he'll put his finger on something. And we'll go, what about this? Are you willing to give me that? And when we're willing, then it gives him more room to come and be Lord, to come and bring the blessing of the kingdom to who we are. He's asking us to respond by faith. Living faith obeys even when it's painful. Living faith obeys even when it's painful. Living faith obeys even when it's painful. Dead faith tries to offer something else. <laughs> How many of you ever tried to bargain with God? He's asking for this. Say, God, here you go. No, son, I'm asking for this. Yeah, here, here you are. There's a scripture in the Old Testament that says God wants obedience better than sacrifice. Right? We try to sacrifice all this other stuff. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come early. I'm going to stay late. I'm going to um, reach out to my neighbor. I'm going to start reading my Bible more. I'm going to pray more. But what I want is this. Yeah, I know, but I'm going to be over here doing all this other stuff. Is God waiting on our obedience this morning? Is there a provision from heaven that's waiting to be released by our sacrifice? Abraham laid Isaac on the altar. He brought the knife up in the air, and all of a sudden, God said, Abraham. Up to that point, there's no mention of a ram in the thicket. But all of a sudden, when Abraham raises his knife up, and God stops him, and he looks over, and there's God's provision waiting for him as a result of his obedience. So what provision from heaven is waiting to be released by our sacrifice? Reputation, pride, anger, unforgiveness, compromise, habits, attitudes, possessions, relationships, jobs, achievements, our own way, the way we want it to happen, when we want it to happen, the way we want it to be, the way we want it to look. We have to surrender what seems so valuable to us that we don't know how we could live without it. Any of you ever have something like that before? I don't, I don't know if I can live without this. God, I, 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 I'm not willing. <laughs> and when we get those times in our life, friends, if we're willing to look at it truthfully, there's a prayer that I have prayed many times. God, I'm willing to be willing. 
I'm not willing right now. God, but I'm willing to be willing. <laughs> so God, I give you the permission, the right to come and change my heart and change my mind. God, I'm willing to be willing. Is there anything this morning that you can't say you're willing, but you're willing to be willing? Because you just give something God to something that He can work with, and He will. Whatever room we make for Him, He will come and fill. Whatever opportunity He give we give Him, He will come and take advantage of. We have to surrender what seems so valuable to us that we don't know how we could live without it. But if we do that, we will see how faithful God is. We'll see how loving and kind He is. We will know that He is the God that He's promised to be and He is the God who will do what He's promised to do. But this is not the only example of living faith that James records. He also tells us about Rahab's singular loyalty. Rahab's singular loyalty. Joshua spent, sent two spies out to Jericho. How many remember Jericho? Big walls marched around, they fell down. This is before the walls fell down. Joshua sent two spies to go check it out. They found shelter in the house of Rahab, who was a prostitute, lived in the walls of the city. Rahab betrayed her own people, her own king, to help these two foreigners because she was convinced that their God was God. And that aligning herself with him was the only way to save herself and her family. The king called her into whatever kind of place he had. And he said, hey, what about these men? She said, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. They left, they went that way, you should go look for them. She betrayed her own people. She betrayed her own king to help two foreigners she'd never met and didn't know because she was convinced that their God was God and that aligning herself with him was the only way to save herself and her family. Joshua 2, 8, 9, and 11. Before the men fell asleep, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land. Going to verse 11, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. She never heard a sermon. She never read a scripture. She heard that what God did in Egypt and she heard that the Israelites were moving in and overpowering nations that had been there for a long time. Your God is God in heaven and on earth below. And I know the only way for me to survive, the only way for me to be saved is to align myself with him. She found a new king and she found a new people, a people brought together by faith in the God of gods. Friends, the most important loyalty we have has to be to him. The most important loyalty we have has to be to God. Heck, I can even love Pittsburgh Steelers fans in Jesus' name. I can love... Baltimore Raven fans in Jesus' name. I can love people that don't look like me, people that don't vote like me, people that don't love like me. I can love them in Jesus' name. Because the most important loyalty we have is to Him. 
Matthew 6.33, but first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. Seek first the kingdom of God. Matthew 10.37 and 39, the one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone who finds his life will lose it, and anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. Before family, before friends, before politics, before race, before economics, before educational status, he has to be first. The most important thing about you and me is not any of those things. The most important thing about you and me is our position with God is our connection and our relationship with Him. Before family, before friends, before politics, before race, before economic or educational or lifestyle status, He has to be first. So are there any loyalties that pull against our loyalty to God? Are there any loyalties that we have today that pull against our loyalty to God? Are there some loyalties that we need to abandon in order to put God first? Just think about that for a minute. Just sort through the Rolodex. Is there any loyalty I have, maybe to some relationships, to some um, situations, to uh, anything that's in my life that causes me, that pulls me away, that eats at, tries to erode my loyalty to God? Friends, we need to weed out the dead faith and make room for living faith to grow. I'm going to ask you to stand with me before we leave today. I just want us to spend a moment and just ask God, what does He want us to do with His Word to us this morning? How does He want us to respond to him. Does God have His finger on something in your life today? Friend, the very worst thing any one of us can do is ignore that. It may feel like a little thing. It's not a big deal. It's just a little thing. I'm going to get it right. I'm going to clean out the garage next month. I'm going to clean it out once summer starts, once the weather breaks. I'm going to do it later. that thing that God has his finger on? What's that thing that he's asking you to sacrifice? What's that thing that he's asking you to surrender? Are you willing? I can tell you, I know it can be painful. I understand. You've been walking with Jesus for any length of time. You've been to that altar a few times. But what he gives back friends, is powerful and eternal. What He gives back is treasure that we can't get anyplace else. That thing that you're so afraid you can't live without, that thing that you don't feel like you could ever be happy without. I want to encourage you to put it on the altar today. our happiness is found in Him. <laughs> and as long as we're depending on all these other props, guess what? We'll never figure that out. 
As long as we're depending on, we're walking on this crutch and we're walking on this crutch, we'll never figure it out that he really is enough. There's something you got to bring to the altar this morning. Living faith will be costly. Risky. Sacrificial. But what we get in return is glorious and powerful and eternal, friends. I'm just encourage it. Maybe you put your hands out before the Lord today. Just, just as a way of surrender. ask him speak to me what is standing in the way of my relationship with you what loyalty am I attached to that pulls at my loyalty from you I want a singular loyalty to the God of gods to the God of heaven He is the only one that can save. He is the only one that can restore. He's the only one that forgives. He's the only one that sets free. But as long as we are depending on other stuff, we'll never find that the way that He wants us to have it. We'll never understand or know or have confidence that He is truly enough. James says there's a faith that can look and sound religious, but it has no power and it has no life. And that kind of faith, it works its way into real and living faith because there's an enemy and he sows those seeds in our lives and in our hearts. There's a kind of faith that dead and the weeds grow up and the branches die and no fruit comes. But friends, we're able to chop down the dead branches and to give room for new life and new faith to grow. How many would just say this morning that, God, I want to get rid of all the dead branches. I'm willing to cut them out today as you show them to me. Bringing my Isaac to the altar today. bringing my Isaac to the altar today. I know that what I get back will be powerful and glorious and eternal. Father, I thank you for those listening to this message this morning. God, you know the pain we feel brought your only son to the altar one in whom all the promises were wrapped up in because you knew there was resurrection power waiting on the other side Lord I pray that you would allow our hearts to be assured that there's life on the other side that there's power on the other side there's joy and strength and freedom and peace on the other side Lord, we bring our sacrifice this morning. We bring our Isaac to the altar. Maybe you're watching or listening to my voice this morning. Said, Tim, I've never really been to that altar before because I've 
never really brought my own life there. And that's the very first thing you have to bring. You have to bring yourself to the altar. Surrender to Him. Now, we all do that imperfectly. But it has to start with a decision and it goes on from there. Maybe you've never really given yourself to God in that way. You've never really surrendered to Him before, but you want to change that today. You say, I want to give my life to God. <laughs> I want Him to come and bring me life, joy, and peace in return. Here in this room, I just encourage you to lift up your hand. That's me. I want to give my life to God today and bring my life to the altar. Yeah. Maybe you're watching online or you will be watching later. It doesn't matter where you are, what you're doing. Just lift your hands towards heaven. Just say, God, I give you my life. I've tried to do so many things with it, God, but you're the one that knows how to make me strong and whole. You're the one who brings forgiveness and life. So God, I want to exchange my life for yours. I want to exchange my sin and weakness for your strength. I want to exchange my brokenness for wholeness today. So I, I do that to you. I bring my life to you and I ask you to give me your life in return. Forgive my sins. Make me whole. Lead me. Guide me and direct me. I give myself to you. Fill me with your love, your joy, your peace, and your power in a way that enables me to live for you. Father, we thank you today. I know that this altar experience isn't going away. It's something we face on a regular basis. But I pray, God, that in our hearts that we would see the other side. That there's provision waiting in heaven, Lord, as we are willing to let it go. There's provision waiting in heaven, for that thing that we can't seem to get over, that thing that we can't seem to get across, there's provision waiting from heaven as we just surrender to Him in brand new ways. Lord, bless and touch each one I ask. Help us to live in that place. Lord, we thank You for it. We ask these things in Your name and for Your glory and by Your power. If that's your prayer this morning, somebody shout it, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. I'll be here uh, Wednesday.